You know, anytime we open God's word, uh, it's a very serious time. Uh, his word is like us approaching that burning bush, holy ground. And so we, we reverence the time that we can open God's word and really just absorb it together. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we do come to your word as so very holy. It's the power to change us, to transform us, that we might be more like our Jesus. It's what saves us, Lord. It's the only hope for this broken world. We thank you for your word. We take it serious, God. I pray that you would help me, God, to handle your word of God, to handle it with respect, with awe, and with reverence. And would you change us all by it, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> good morning again. I was thinking uh, about this instance. I actually shared this with my brothers from the Bridge House this past week. Uh, something that happened to me, I guess it was maybe about a year ago. I'm a daily runner, so every single day I'm going to run at least a mile. I'm going to try to try to do about 25 miles a week, and a lot of times it's late in the evening when I finally get to my run. And one of my launch points for a run is the wellness center in Thibodeau. So I'll park at the wellness center, and I usually take off from there, and I can run through Acadia Woods, or I can run onto the campus and make my mile. So it was one night, and I think it was a Sunday night, actually, and I got to the wellness center. I wanted to do about three to five miles that night, and by that time, you know, your legs have been, you never know how your legs are going to feel until you start moving. So I started moving, going down the sidewalk from the wellness center, heading towards the campus, and I got to say that my legs felt great. My legs felt great. They don't always feel great, but if you're a runner, you know what I mean? Sometimes your legs just feel great. So I started opening it up. I, was, I got a good pace going, and I was into about the first, maybe approaching a half mile, and I got to the end of that sidewalk, and then I I cross over and I go across Bowie Road into the parking lot by the women's center at the hospital that I'm going to cut across there and then head to campus. And I, as I cross Bowie Road, the next thing I knew, I was sprawling head first. Just, I was like Superman going through the sky. I didn't know what had happened and I hit the ground. And I mean, I was running fast. Well... Don't laugh if you run with me. You know that's really not true. But I'm just, I'm flying and I hit the ground. So what was the first thing that I do? What would be the first thing you do? Look around and make sure nobody's looking. All right? And it's dark. It's like I'm running in the dark. Okay? So first of all, like, is any, well, thank God it's dark. Nobody sees me. So the next thing I want to do is I want to check myself. Like, okay, my phone is like 50 feet away. It, my phone, I had my phone in my hand. Uh, my friend Jonathan has taught me not to do that. But it had, it had launched even further than I did. So am I okay? So I get back up and let's see. Oh, yeah, I feel okay. I think I'm all right. 
And so I continued. But the first thing I did was I had to look around and see, what in the world happened? What in the world happened? And have you ever seen how asphalt will bubble up? Like when it meets another surface? And let me tell you, it had bubbled up about that high. And I had hit that, I had hit that asphalt as it transitioned to the cement of the parking lot, and I just went flying. There was a hazard that I was not aware of. There's a quote that I found by this lady, Karen Casey. She's a, a, a guru in the recovery community. She said this, she said, stumbling is part of the human experience. Picking ourselves up allows us an additional glance at the landscape on which we tripped. And that's what had happened for me that day. I was able to get up and I was able to have another look at the landscape on which I had tripped. And that is where we are in our study of John chapter 8. The landscape is full of obstacles. And we see the religious leaders, these Jews, in the temple. They are being faced with something that is going to cause them to stumble. In John 8, 44a, it was like a lightning bolt from Jesus. It was probably one of the most uh, unbelievable things that he could have said, but he said to the religious leaders, the leaders of that day, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wow, like they're running full tilt. Their legs feel strong, but they're about to trip. Trip on what? The truth, the truth, the truth. A stone of stumbling. So I've entitled this message today, purposely, a stone of of stumbling. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, if you'll follow along with me, Paul is speaking to the church at Rome and he's making a comparison between the Gentiles and the Jews of that day. And he said, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So if we remember the context of where we are as we approach the text this morning, there have been assaults on Jesus throughout his ministry as we have been going through the Gospel of John. And we see that at that time, uh, from the moment that Jesus' ministry had launched, he had been confronting the corruption of the religion of that day. 
He had been confronting the corruption of the temple operations. He had cleansed the temple once already. And so we come to chapter 7, and we see because of the fact that the Jews were dead set on killing him, he went to Galilee. But in the midst, sometime in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, Jesus, in the middle of the feast, showed up there and he began teaching again. And as he was teaching, the truth began to antagonize the Jewish leaders. It began to antagonize them. His enemies, the religious establishment, he called them devils. He called them sons of Satan. It was a powder keg. It was reaching a crescendo in verse 44 when he says, you are of your father, the devil. Those are fighting words. So it's a very antagonistic atmosphere as we come to our text today. The truth will trip you. The truth can be a stone of stumbling. So our main point this morning what we're going to see as we go into this text is that the one who believes the gospel, the eternal word, is a cornerstone. To the one who rejects the gospel, this same eternal word is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, in verse uh, 47, we, I just want to read that to you real quick because it's important as we uh, understand what Jesus is about to answer, he said to them, whoever is of God hears the word of God. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So this was the last thing said, and now we're going to come into our text. Are y'all ready? This is exciting. This is like a crescendo on the whole of chapter 8. This has been going now for two chapters. So are y'all ready? Are y'all ready? All right, here we go. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We're going to look at four main points this morning as we see in this text an unfolding of the eternal word. We see that Jesus offers an invitation that those who would believe in him that would follow his word would never see death. And then he offers an invitation to truly rejoice in him, to rejoice in this day, the day where the gospel is being revealed. And then we'll see that Jesus reveals to those before him that he is truly, truly the great I am. And then lastly, we will see that Jesus is a scandal on. And as we do this, we're going to see three movements in three di dialogues here. We're going to see that there will be an accusation that will come from the religious leaders. And then Jesus will respond with a truth. And then he will offer an invitation. And that will happen three times. But on the last time, there will be no invitation, but rather a withdrawal and we will see the scandal on of God's word. And you think about whenever you get into uh, a debate with somebody, it starts off intellectually. But then things get heated and it gets emotional. And as it gets emotional, there's verbal abuse. And from there, we move to physical Abuse, And that's what we're going to see as they pick up stones in the middle of the temple of God. They pick up stones to kill the Son of God. And finally, in the end, we know that they eventually nail him to a cross. So these phases of accusation are name-calling, truth and invitation we're going to see that there's an antagonizing tone, a scandal on. The truth antagonizes us. The truth rubs us wrong. Truth doesn't settle well with us. But truth loves. Truth loves people. And love destroys lies. It must destroy lies. And I want us to remember never to turn these people into enemies. We see this today in a culture that is so self-righteous and so self-centered. And religions that are following in this same vein. They are not the enemy. They are the mission field. It's people who you may not agree with politically, they are the mission field. Let us not lose sight of the mission field. We respond to lies. We respond to accusations. We respond to name calling. We respond with truth. Truth. So we see the first movement where Jesus, the eternal word, offers an invitation to never see death. To never see death. So we see the accusation first in John 8 
In verse 48, Jesus answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So the Jews are answering Jesus. What did he say? He said, You're not keeping my word. You're not keeping the word of God. The one who hears God's word is of God. And the reason you don't hear them is because you're not of God. And their response is, their response is, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? You, he, had, he had called them devils. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And now they're just turning it. There's, this is the stone of stumbling. Instead of hearing the truth, the truth of God's word, as their lies are being confronted, as their nature is being confronted, instead of hearing that, their hearts become harder and harder and harder. But this is not anything new, right? In Matthew 11, verse 18, says, John came neither eating nor drinking. They're, they're comparing Jesus to John. John came neither eating nor drinking, John the Baptist. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton, a pig, a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. The accusations were not new. In Mark 3 and 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed of Beelzebub. So they said, you're possessed of the Lord of the flies. You're a demon. And they call him a Samaritan. Why a Samaritan? I mean, we had previously saw that Jesus met the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, and there was a confrontation there about true worship and a difference between the ways the Samaritans worshipped and the way that the Jews worshipped. And Jesus would say, there's coming a day when true worshipers will worship not on this mountain and not on that mountain, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. So why this, this charge of being a Samaritan? Well, we know that Historically, the nation of Israel was divided in two. And in that, when that happened, that northern kingdom of ten tribes being taken captive and, and, and separating, they intermarried with pagans, with idolaters, and they were considered to be half-breeds. These were Samaritans. They were the worst of the worst. In Jesus' day, racism was alive and well, and they were saying, you're no more than a Samaritan. You're the illegitimate child of adultery. So we see this accusation, this name calling. And then we move to the next movement. In verse 49, as Jesus presents truth, Jesus simply says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So truth, calm, cool, and collected, it's just been really a lot of hurtful name-calling. You've got a demon. You're a Samaritan. Calm, cool, and collected. He just gives them truth. And we see Peter spoke about that in 1 Peter 2 and 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That was Jesus. When he was reviled, he answered with what? He answered with truth. Truth. Simple truth. In John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord. He sent me. But they reject the truth. And in verse 50, he says simply, I do not seek my own glory. I'm not seeking my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I don't seek my own glory. I don't seek my own glory. How hard that is. Jesus is saying, I'm here in humiliation. He came in humiliation. He came humbly. Philippians 2, right? He emptied himself. He became a slave, a doulos in Greek. He emptied himself and became a servant. The creator of all in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word, that creator, became the created. And he was found in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He humbled himself and he took on flesh and blood. He took on my name. He took on what I am. He became a man. The creator became the created. In the word of God, it said that uh, there was no form or comeliness in him. There was nothing attractive about Jesus. He was despised. He was rejected. A man of sorrows. He said, I'm a worm and a no man. Humiliation. He humbled himself. That was Jesus. And he said, I don't seek my own glory. I didn't come here to prop myself up or to, to try to show you something. He came in humiliation. I don't seek my own glory. And he says in John 5 and 41, I do not receive glory from people. Man, we love glory from people, don't we? We love glory from people. It would be so good to hear you say when I get done today, great job. We love glory from people. But Jesus is saying, I do not receive glory from people. I do not receive glory from people. That is the essence, truly, of the incarnation. He took on flesh and blood. He says, I honor my Father. I seek my Father's glory. If I did glorify myself, if I did speak about all those things, it would mean nothing. But I seek my Father's glory, and it is my Father who seeks mine. It is my Father who seeks mine. Powerful uh, scripture in Psalms chapter 2. This is so powerful. Let's just, let's just absorb this scripture that really points to Christ at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed saying, and this is what the religious leaders right now are doing, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now I want you to know that right now they are on Mount Zion in this confrontation. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, it's God who glorifies. God is the one who is glorifying the Son, the truth. He is the vindicator. He is the final judge, and that is what Jesus is saying to them. That's how he responds with truth. You say, I have a devil. You say, I'm a Samaritan, but I'm not going to respond to that. God is my vindicator. God is the judge. And God would do that. He had been doing that, right? through signs and wonders, even through his very spoken word. When Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, what was heard? This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And once again, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John will hear the words spoken by God once again. This is my beloved son. Hear him. But Jesus says, I don't glorify myself. God will issue the verdict. So we have the accusation. We have truth. And now let's see this beautiful invitation, the invitation that comes from our Lord. Truly, 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 truly. 25 times that phrase, truly, truly. Literally, amen, amen. Truly, Truly, 25 times we see it in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, double, double affirmation. This is serious. Listen up. Listen to this beautiful invitation from the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They are facing judgment. They are facing death. And Jesus says, if anyone, who is anyone? Anyone is anyone. That's you. 
That's me. That's them. If anyone. Samaritan, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter. If anyone, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. What an invitation. What a promise. If anyone keeps my word, my logos, my gospel, my message, you won't see it. You won't experience it. He's speaking of the second death. He's speaking of a death that is eternal, a death that is eternal in our separation from the holiness and love and mercy of a graceful God. If anyone... If anyone will keep my word, you will never, never, never see death. How amazing of a promise is that, church? So what a great invitation. But this moves us to round two. As he offers the invitation, we come to the second movement in this act where Jesus offers an invitation to truly rejoice in him. And it begins with them responding to this invitation with yet another accusation. And we see it in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You have a demon. They're blaspheming. The son of God. False religion always does that. It always takes good and makes it evil. It takes evil and makes it good. No death? You're crazy. Abraham, our father, he's dead. Who do you think you are? You better than him? You're insane. So they stumble once again on the truth that he is giving them. You haven't got power over death. Well, stick around. Stick around. Because this study of the eternal word is going to be put on pause just for a few weeks. But when we return and we get to chapter 9, or chapter 11, that is, we're going to see this unbelievable miracle of Jesus showing power over death when he says, Lazarus, come forth. You don't have power over death. So what does Jesus do? The same theme of humility, we go from accusation to truth. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. So the same theme of humility, I don't glorify myself. You dishonor God in dishonoring me. God has affirmed me. But you ignore the truth. 
You have not known Him. You don't really know Him. You call yourselves the leaders, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. You're living a lie. Wake up. Wake up. That's truth. That's truth that trips you up. You're living a lie. A scandalon. A rock of offense. And then Jesus moves to another invitation. He says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So previously he has said, you are of your father the devil. But here he's going to concede a little bit to them. He's going to say, yes, uh, genetically, biologically, your father, you are physical descendants of Abraham. I will give you that. But Abraham rejoiced to see this day. Won't you? Abraham rejoiced. Won't you rejoice in this day? We see in Genesis 22, verse 17, God is speaking to Abraham in this very location. And he says to him, from 2,000 years before, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. What a promise. What a messianic promise that God made to Abraham. He had first given this Abrahamic covenant when he had him divide animals in two, and then he caused a sleep to come upon Abraham. Abraham fell asleep, and God walked through those pieces of, of animal. He walked through that offering on his own, and he made a covenant then that Abraham, his seed, would be like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky, and by his seed, all nations would be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant. You'll have a child, Abraham. You're going to have a son. In your old age, and Abraham believed it. He was an old man. He did not have Isaac until he was 100 years old. But Abraham believed God. He came to God in faith. He believed that. And we have the birth of Isaac, and then the birth of Jacob, and then the 12 patriarchs, and on and on. And now the seed has come. He saw it. He saw this time. He saw it with eyes of faith. In Hebrews 11 and 13, it says, these all died in faith. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham saw my day. He saw it dimly. He saw it from afar, and he was glad. It brought him joy. Don't you want Abraham's joy? So he offers this beautiful invitation, and it moves us to the third act. Jesus, the eternal word, is the great I am. John 8, 57, 
we begin with the accusation. They're stepping it up a notch. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Another accusation, another poke at him. They're saying, you little whippersnapper. You're still wet behind the ears. You're not yet 50 years old. But we know that Jesus was about 32 at this time. You know Abraham? Come on. Jesus responds with what? The truth. The truth. And here is one of the most magnificent, unbelievable statements in your Bible. In John 8 and verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The eternal word. It's called a tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. It doesn't even have vowels. It cannot even be enunciated. It's so holy. It's so pure. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. The great I am. Yahweh, we say. The God revealed at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, in verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. It's a place where Moses couldn't even keep the shoes on his feet. God spoke from the burning bush and said, take your shoes off. The place that you're standing is holy ground. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The great I Am. Wow! And it was more than they could bear. More than they could digest. So, it goes to the physical. They want him dead and they pick up stones to crush him. And instead of an invitation, we see a withdrawal and something that is so, so, so sad. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And that's not really the sad part. But Jesus hid himself. That's sad. And he went out of the temple. There's no invitation anymore. There's withdrawal. And Jesus hides himself. The truth is a scandal on. Jesus will say in John chapter 9 and verse 39 that he came into the world for judgment, for judgment. 
I am come into the world. And you say, wait up a minute. I thought he came to seek and to save the lost. Yes, he did. And you say, uh, he said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Yes, but he must judge. The truth judges. And he will say, for judgment, I came into this world. Mercy requires judgment. Love requires judgment. He would stand a year from now over this very same spot and he would look out over the holy city, this holy mountain, and he would say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her young under her wings, but you would not. So he's a scandalon, which pulls us to our final point. Jesus, the eternal word, is a scandalon. What is a scandalon? It's a trap. It's a snare. It's a rock which causes us to stumble. It's like that bubbled up asphalt that put me on my face. And the truth will do that. Truth is a stone of stumbling. Genesis chapter 22 in verse 1. Stay with me. This is going to be a long little section. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him here or offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
on that very spot, the spot where the religious leaders picked up stones off of the ground to snuff the life out of the Son of God. On that very ground, Abraham met the great I Am. The Eternal One. And that Jesus whom they chose to murder is typified by that ram caught in the thicket. In the very spot that the temple is now located. In fact, they could have picked up one of the rocks that were there when Abraham built the altar to strap his son on. A rock that the great I Am created. But Abraham did not trip. He did not stumble. God had promised that of his seed, all nations would be blessed. And he raised the knife in total obedience. He believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. A stone of stumbling became a cornerstone. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 6, as we come to a close, for it stands in Scripture. Oh man, if we could just, like if we could just get a hold of that line itself. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So for those who believe the gospel, the eternal word is a cornerstone. But for those who reject the gospel, that same eternal word is a stone of stumbling. And I thank God that when I do stumble, I'm able to view the landscape from which I fell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is a scandalon, that your word is a stone of stumbling because it causes me to pause and look at the landscape and look at my fall and how great that fall is. But it shows me the hope that the same truth that offends, the same truth that crushes, the same truth that crushes my pride, that crushes my sinfulness, that crushes my spirit, is the same stone, that cornerstone, 
in which I stand. Be our cornerstone, God. And for those who have stumbled, let them take a look at the landscape. Let them see you and all your glory and rejoice as Abraham did to see your day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.